to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining me on another episode, a solo-sode, of the Red Light Report. Up here in Montana, it's been sunny. Springtime is here. Things are starting to turn green. And with that being said, I have been re-engaging my solar callus, which I'm sure you've heard me talk about in prior episodes. And uh, building up your solar callus, essentially, just like building up a callus from weightlifting, from lifting heavy weights, and you get those calluses on your palms and hands. But in this, it's more of a metaphor, solar callus from the sun. And my point being, building up your solar callus means you're able to be outside for a longer period of time before your skin starts to turn that red hue or that red glow before you're going to get a sunburn. If you do not build up your solar callus, then it doesn't take long for you to be outside before you do start getting that red glow. And of course, different types of skin, uh, skin colors, different heritages lend itself to inherently giving someone an increased or decreased solar callus from a base level. But regardless, if you've been inside all winter like I have in Montana, then at the start of every spring, I'm starting from basically ground zero. My heritage is basically, did some Ancestry.com test a while ago. I think it's either 50 to 60, maybe even 75% is Eastern European. So very white, pale skin, relatively speaking. So every spring, I'm starting from ground zero, where I need to build up my solar callus by giving myself full sun exposure. If I can, you know, I'll take my shirt off and again, expose as much skin as possible for as long as possible until I start getting that red glow. And then it's time to go inside because I do not want to get skin cancer or sunburns. I should have said that backwards because sunburns are more or less the prelude to skin cancers, but I digress. I've been bundled up all winter in my house. It's mostly overcast, gloomy, not to mention cold, so I'm not getting much sun exposure during the winter. And I love red light therapy through and through. You guys know me, but uh, that's really not going to resolve the solar catalyst because you need full spectrum sunlight, especially the UV rays. And speaking of vitamin D, you need the UVB rays specifically. So yeah, red light therapy, love it, but it's not going to resolve this issue I'm talking about. So my point being, long-winded way of saying spring is here. I'm getting my sun exposure. I'm building up my solar callus. And you'd be surprised. I mean, even within a week of doing sun exposure daily, I can be outside, I would call it significantly longer before... I start to get that red glow that's telling me to go inside and not get that sunburn. And that just kind of speaks to consistency. And that goes for for a lot of things in life. But man, especially for sun exposure and building up that solar callus. I mean, by the end of summer, I get to the point where I can be outside for hours and hours with my shirt off getting full sun exposure and I don't get uh, that red glow. So, So that's the whole point is slowly but surely building up the solar callus over time you're basically building up your endogenous sunscreen of sorts. And and on that point, something I do take on a very, very consistent basis is astaxanthin, which in its own right helps you stay outside longer without getting UV-induced skin damage. 
So in that sense, it works as a natural sunscreen because astaxanthin is from an algae. A lot of it's from Hawaii where the algae gets exposed to sunlight. It gets stressed by the sunlight and it gives off this nice orange goo, which is the astaxanthin. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.s-h-o-p. And then we as human beings consume that astaxanthin, and it gives us a variety of benefits. Of course, the one I just pointed out is for sun exposure and skin health, but astaxanthin can help with hair health, eye health, nail health, so on and so forth. And I initially started taking it, it's been about six years now, because I, as a child and young adult, dealt with severe chronic dry eyes. I went to ophthalmologists multiple times. I was given different type of steroids or different things to put in my eye. I even had my punctals plugged in hope that I would get more tears in my eye to bathe my eyes. But none of that helped until one of my coworkers at my first physical therapy job told me about astaxanthin, had never heard it up to that point, looked at it, researched it, and started taking it on a daily basis. And within a couple of weeks, my dry eyes were significantly improved for the first time in years and years and years and years, probably a decade plus. And so I've been a staunch believer in astaxanthin and then couple that with some great research and knowledge from Dr. Sandra Kaufman, who I'll be getting on the podcast soon. Not only does astaxanthin help with all of that, but it can do so much more. And when I started this podcast, I did not mean to talk this much about astaxanthin, but but since we're on the topic, <laughs> let's take a little bit of a deep dive here. So astaxanthin acts by calming down an irritated system and promoting cellular survival. It quenches free radicals, blocks damage from oxidative stress, and it acts as an anti-inflammatory. As a free radical scavenger, which is a molecule that is able to destroy free radicals, when our astaxanthin molecule reaches an individual cell, it is able to incorporate in both the cell membrane and the mitochondrial membrane. We'll get into this in a second here, but astaxanthin is actually quite beneficial for mitochondrial health as well. Astaxanthin itself is a far more potent free radical scavenger for reactive oxygen species than its molecular cousins. So check out these numbers. It is 200 times that 
of other polyphenols as a free radical scavenger. 150 times of anthocyanin, 75 times better than alpha-lipoic acid or ALA, 550 times greater than vitamin E, 54 times greater than beta-carotene, 6,000 times greater than vitamin C, and 800 times that of coenzyme Q. So again, that was for its ability to scavenge free radicals. But now when we compare antioxidant capacities, the results are similar to what I just said. Astaxanthin is 10 times greater as an antioxidant than lutein and zeaxanthin, 14 times greater than vitamin E, 54 times greater than beta-carotene, 65 times greater than vitamin C, and 100 times greater in antioxidant activity than alpha-tocopherol. Astaxanthin is simply more powerful than its competitors. Astaxanthin is quite unique. It can either accept or donate protons, but unlike many other substances, it does not itself become a pro-oxidant. And when looking at its capacity for mitochondrial health, unfortunately, studies on the effects of astaxanthin specifically looking at mitochondria are somewhat uncommon. However, there is a great study with beagles. So listen to this. Both young beagles and old beagles were given astaxanthin for 16 weeks, and a few things were uncovered. First, and not unexpectedly, the astaxanthin suppressed DNA damage. A lot in old dogs and a little in the young dogs, which makes sense. Secondly, the mitochondrial mass increased in the geriatric dogs. So pretty interesting. That, that kind of speaks to the mitochondrial aspect of astaxanthin potentially. Lastly, astaxanthin increased in the ATP or energy production 12 to 14% in both the old and young. So it seems that astaxanthin truly is beneficial to the mitochondria. And then looking into the eye health aspect of astaxanthin, the Japanese, they love astaxanthin and they're responsible for most of the vision and skin research. We owe a great deal of the thanks to the Japanese in this area. And in 2009, Japanese researchers administered 6 milligrams daily to middle-aged people, 46 to 65 years old, for one month. Remarkably, 60% of the subjects had visual improvements, especially in the categories of difficulty to see near objects, eye strain, and blurred vision. And then looking specifically at skin, what does astaxanthin do? It turns out that one of the coolest things astaxanthin does is block damage to the skin from the environment, especially radiation. In human cell lines, especially skin fibroblasts and melanocytes, astaxanthin was shown to reduce DNA damage that was precipitated by UVA radiation. Remember that UVA radiation causes damage by creating free radicals that then destroy the DNA. Given most of the studies with skin cells and radiation have been done in isolated cells sitting in a dish, but this effect applies to real people as well. It thus turns out that astaxanthin can actually block sun damage from the inside. It can't block all the DNA damage, so don't throw away the sunscreen, but it can block a significant portion. Astaxanthin doesn't just prevent skin damage, it turns out it can actually improve it. 
Again, the Japanese are on the ball here. In 2011, 30 healthy Japanese women, ranging from ages 20 to 55, used astaxanthin both as a supplement at 6 milligrams and as a topical cream for two months. The women were thrilled. There was definitive skin improvement in crow's feet, age spot size, elasticity, skin texture, and the moisture content of corneocytes. So some pretty darn compelling information and research and uh, applications for astaxanthin. And those excerpts that I just read were from Dr. Sandra Kaufman's book. It's called The Kaufman Protocol. And I highly, highly recommend it if you're into anti-aging and longevity. With that being said, astaxanthin is one of her top anti-aging longevity supplements or adjuvants. Pretty cool. And just remember, astaxanthin is natural. It's that orange goo from algae. And I'm even talking about it on this podcast because it indirectly has to do with light because, again, that goop is formed because of the algae being stressed by sun exposure. So you're consuming basically a stress response from a plant that you're consuming, which then helps you in a multitude of ways that I just went over. So essentially, that's consuming a form of light via the algae being the carrier It's just mind-blowing how you're essentially fighting light with light, if you want to look at it that way. Pretty crazy. But I just wanted to pass that on to you guys because it's pretty cool to just know about these different types of supplements that you can look into for yourselves and do your own research, see if it's something that makes sense for yourself and your body. It's one of my non-negotiables as far as supplements or something I'll take every single day. And I've been whittling that down because I used to be the type of person that would take every supplement underneath the sun if it had some good marketing and some good research behind it. But again, the more I've learned about light, water, and magnetism, largely thanks to Dr. Jack Cruz and others, I've significantly decreased the amount of supplements I've been taking, and I revert to nature as much as possible for the foundation of my health. And then take those non-negotiables like astaxanthin as necessary. But moving on from that, I was reading over, kind of just reviewing this book I had read a year or two ago. It's called Light Therapies, A Complete Guide to the Healing Power of Light. And it is a, dare I say, a wealth of information. It's well over 300 pages. It's by Anadi Martel. And the foreword is by Dr. Jacob Lieberman. That name should ring a bell from a couple episodes ago. Uh, But regardless... This book is just great information on light in general, light medicine, both, you know, color therapy, using uh, the full spectrum sunlight, and then using technology like red light therapy. There's just some sections of this book I want to go over and review with you guys. A lot of this you're going to have already heard, especially if you've been listening to this podcast from the very beginning. But regardless, I think there will be some really nice take-home points here. So I want to begin on the historical side of things as it pertains to light or light therapy as a whole in general, because I think it'll be eye-opening to hear how common light was used to heal people, then how it took a step backwards, which we'll learn about, and how it was almost laughed upon or kind of just thrown into the corner, and now how it's starting to reemerge the last couple decades or several decades. So I just want to share that with you. So I'll, I'll begin with a section entitled the golden age of light therapy. As a result of the work of the pioneers just mentioned, by the beginning of the 20th century, 
different methods of light therapy were being routinely used in Europe and the Americas. These methods were offered in the context of a host of medical specialties, including psychiatry, optometry, and chiropractic. Many clinics that used heliotherapy were opened. And remember, heliotherapy is using the sun to heal people. Heliotherapy. And Auguste Rollier alone was the director of 14 hospitals totaling more than 1,000 beds. Many psychiatric hospitals were equipped with colored rooms, a red one to treat chronic melancholy, including depression and insomnia, and a blue room to benefit those from mania and alcoholism. Psychologist Brian Brayling calls the period from 1860 to 1938 the golden age of light therapy, while he dubs the period that succeeded it from 1938 to 1980 the era of darkness with respect to the widespread acceptance of light therapy. The year of demarcation, which is 1938, when the first antibiotic, penicillin, appeared on the medical scene. The subsequent pharmaceutical revolution, with its miracle drugs that healed the worst illnesses in a few days, was soon to completely overshadow other, more natural, therapeutic approaches, such as light therapy, which took longer to show healing effects, and which were also less reliable in producing the desired results. There is no doubt that the development of pharmaceutical medicine has been beneficial beyond measure to public health. A large number of otherwise fatal illnesses have effectively disappeared from the world, and most people can look forward to a much longer lifespan. And now genetic medicine, the latest carrier of the scientific flame, encourages us to an even more spectacular future. The next section is entitled, Darkness Descends. The rise of pharmacological approaches after 1938 quickly eclipsed the use of light therapy in medicine, a process that did not happen in a completely reasonable way. Light therapy is based on a holistic approach to healing. This is at odds with the mechanistic approach of orthodox science that now controls modern medicine. The witch hunt by the medical establishment began in earnest in the 1930s. In the United States, the magnets of the new industrial pharmaceutical companies that were cropping up financed the publication of the Flexner Report in 1910. The aim of the report was to discredit all therapeutic approaches its publishers considered unscientific, including naturopathy and homeopathy and, by extension, light therapy. Throughout early to mid-1900s, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, under pressure by the pharmaceutical industry's already powerful lobbying groups, gradually succeeded in rendering illegal the majority of practices involving light therapy, systematically assailing its principal representatives. Harry Riley Spiller was forced to close his school, and his light devices were declared illegal and banned from being transported from one state to another. Dinsha Gadiali, who was pursued in American courts in 1931, narrowly escaped condemnation thanks to the eloquent testimonies of some physicians using his technique, such as that of surgeon Kate Baldwin in 1927, who stated, After 37 years of active hospital and private practice in medicine and surgery, I produce quicker and more accurate results using spectrochrome, which was Dinshaw Gaudiali's device, than with any other methods, and there was less strain on the patient. However, Dinshaw was not so fortunate the next time. He was charged again in 1947 and was forced to close his institute and destroy all his books, documents, and research papers. Only one copy survived. 
1958, the FDA served him with a permanent injunction, which even by the time of his death in 1966 had not been lifted. In fact, it is still in place today, and because of this, many of his original publications have been out of print for decades. There's no doubt that Dinshaw was not entirely innocent in attracting the wrath of medical establishment. He had never hesitated to criticize it vigorously, and his scientific method was certainly not entirely beyond reproach. But it would have been far wiser to try to understand the basis of the beneficial effects of light that he had started to uncover than to set about destroying and erasing all traces of his life's work. By the beginning of the 1950s, the majority of outlets for the practice of light therapy had disappeared from hospitals and clinics throughout the world, and those who still dare to practice this technique had to do so more or less undercover. What a change in just a few short years, as illustrated by the following. An advertisement in the 1927 edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association contains the praiseworthy statement, Light is to health and happiness as darkness is to disease and despair. A February 2000 edition of the same journal offers the following. The therapeutic efficacy for infrared, ultraviolet, and low-energy laser therapies has not been sufficiently established to permit recommendation. 150 years of medical treatments using therapeutic light were thus obliterated. So pretty crazy how the Journal of American Medical Association in 1927 singing the praises of light, yet in 2000, quite the opposite. This section is called The New Age of Light. Luckily for our story, a new starting point began with the emergence in the 1980s of what Brian Brayling calls the New Age of Light. It had already been foreseen through the work of those like photobiologist Dr. John Nash Ott, who in the 1970s was able to establish the importance of biological considerations when evaluating the quality of artificial light sources. Ott showed that artificial lights often have deficient spectra, thus provoking what he called malillumination, an environmental condition characterized by the absence of full-spectrum light. Other significant research included that of Dr. Fritz Hallwich, a German ophthalmologist who published a trailblazing book in 1979 titled The Influence of Ocular Light Perception on Metabolism in Man and an Animal. And this is a side note, that should sound familiar, folks, because we did a three-part series in January of this year, specifically scouring that book by Dr. Fritz Hallwich. So if you have not listened to those episodes, I highly Highly, highly recommend you listen to all three of them because Dr. Fritz Hallwich explains how light impacts our eye and not for the purpose of vision, but because of the energetic portion of light and what that does to our entire physiology. But moving on, Norman Rosenthal studied the relationship between the lack of light and depression, coining the term seasonal affective disorder or SAD to describe this condition. And Michael Terman, in 1988, explored the use of bright light therapy as a treatment for SAD, or SAD, which opened the door to a renewed interest in the research of chronobiology. Finally, in 1990, Dr. Jacob Lieberman published the book Light, Medicine of the Future, which has since become one of the most popular books of all time on vision and chromotherapy. And the section here is called Key Discoveries. Scientific research on the biophysical influence of light has led to some of the most prominent discoveries in recent years. In 1995, 
biologist Tina Carew, head of the Laboratory of Laser Biology and Medicine of the Russian Academy of Sciences, published her discovery of the main component in regenerative action of light on our cells, the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme. Her undeniable evidence for the existence of this regenerative process, which she calls photobiomodulation, has rekindled a global interest in the biological effects of light. In 2002, Samer Hattar announced in the Journal of Science their discovery of a new type of photosensitive cell in the retina, until then unknown, revealing the missing link that explains the influence of light on our hormonal system. Beginning in the 1990s, the American Space Agency, NASA, as well as its Russian counterpart, has been showing great interest in the medical potential of light for astronauts undergoing space travel. The goal is to produce devices for healing and regeneration that are small and lightweight enough to be operable in space. The initial financial investments that have been made in this area have contributed significantly to stimulating the new wave of research. And the last section here is the future of light medicine. A new generation of researchers is pressing up against the old boundaries zealously imposed by the medical establishment, delving into what is broadly known as energy medicine and opening vast new domains of study previously rejected by the mechanistic and reductionist approach that dominated institutionalized science for the last century. These researchers are often found at the forefront of their specialty and have been incorporating such fields as bioelectronics, quantum mechanics, and neurophysiology in their exploration of the interaction between living organisms and energy fields such as light. They have been uncovering a level of sensitivity and complexity in these interactions hitherto unimaginable. This emerging paradigm naturally faces great resistance. The medical establishment is one of the largest enterprises of our society. Its sheer size generates enormous inertia that is driven by economic and political interests that very few people continue to consider impartial. The pharmaceutical industry behemoth, Big Pharma, behaves according to its nature and therefore does everything in its power to maintain the status quo, investing some $230 million a year in the United States for lobbying purposes alone more than any other industry. Apart from the economic pressures brought by the pharmaceutical industry, scientists have a very human tendency to reject that which goes beyond their conditioning, acquired from a long and arduous formal education. And since scientists have become the priests of our modern world, public opinion and the media can do nothing other than obey their wise counsel. Regardless, even this kind of resistance cannot stop the inevitable. Biologist James Oshman, in 2015, author of the groundbreaking book Energy Medicine, The Scientific Basis, expresses this eloquently. He says, The amount of research carried out on the energetic properties of life has already attained such critical mass that it has now become impossible for any reasonable scientist to ignore this field of inquiry, so the scientific world is gradually being forced to shift. The energetic influence of light, an essential aspect of its nature, although still largely ignored by conventional medicine, is destined to assume a place of growing importance in the near future. And that's the end of that chapter there, but it really brings up a poignant point I want to speak on, and that is, right now we're living in a very special time where we have red light therapy at our disposal, which can treat so many different things. Not medical advice, of course, but based on the research, 
it can surely help with a laundry list of health conditions. My point being, we're living in a time of the convergence and confluence of so much information and technology. My point being that with the information I just talked about, all the different iterations, all the different researchers, all the different people carrying the torch for light and light therapies, in combination with the uh, information and research from individuals like Dr. Doug Wallace on mitochondria, we know the amazing, amazing potential and benefits of red light therapy, combining the implications and history and information and research on light therapy, and then the information and implication and research on mitochondria. Because now we know mitochondria doesn't just produce energy, it impacts our overall health, wellness, and longevity. And we can tame that, we can hone our mitochondria, we can optimize our mitochondria with red light therapy. So just a quick review on some mitochondrial information. We even know, and you've heard in past uh, podcasts, that there's a theory called the mitochondrial theory of aging. And this postulates that the mitochondria are the body's main sources of free radicals that are linked to aging. Kind of like the free radicals that Dr. Sandra Kaufman was talking about that astaxanthin can help scour. But anyway, free radicals are linked to aging because they specifically damage the mitochondria and the mitochondria's vulnerable DNA. And when damage occurs to the mitochondria faster than the mitochondria can repair itself, the mitochondria becomes dysfunctional, which is the first step in aging. The domino effect of dysfunctional mitochondria looks something like this. When we have too many dysfunctional mitochondria, it leads to a dysfunctional cell. When we have too many dysfunctional cells, it leads to dysfunctional tissue. When there's too many dysfunctional tissues, that leads to a dysfunctional organ. Too many dysfunctional organs leads to a dysfunctional system, which leads to death. In essence, the theory submits that the mitochondria really are ultimately our biological clock. Not only that, as most of you know, the mitochondria are literally in all of our cells, every single cell, except red blood cells. So that means red and near-infrared light specifically targets the mitochondria and helps boost their overall health and vitality, which means that it can help with a myriad of different health conditions. And here's a list albeit not complete, of the organ systems that can be compromised secondary to mitochondrial dysfunction. We have muscles, of course, brain, nerves, the whole nervous system, kidneys, heart, liver, the eyes, ears, pancreas. Again, that's not a complete list, but pretty eye-opening that all those organs are implicated with mitochondrial dysfunction. And then here's another list that illustrates acquired conditions that implicate mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, these are going to be more specific, such as type 2 diabetes, cancers, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, aging and senescence, anxiety disorders, cardiovascular diseases, sarcopenia, exercise intolerance, fatigue, which includes chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and myofascial pain. Again, that's not even a complete list. That is the very tip of the iceberg of some conditions that are due to mitochondrial dysfunction being the root cause. 
But again, that's the cool thing about the information we have today because we know that with the power of red and near-infrared light, when utilized correctly, can mitigate, reverse, and prevent those types of conditions. So I just wanted to tie that together because just to further remind you why we're talking about light, why we're talking about red light therapy, because at the end of the day, there's some true changes that can be made when it's utilized correctly. And lives can be changed, health can be improved and optimized. And people, again, this is coming from customers and and patients and clients, people are able to get off certain medications, or at least greatly decrease the amount of medications they're taking, which that alone is able to help with some negative side effects and improve their health. Of course, you know, sleep, energy, and the list goes on and on. So just a quick reminder, not to beat a dead horse, but, and this is back to the book here, Light Therapies. And there's a picture here, and this is moving on to a completely different chapter that speaks specifically about photobiomodulation. And there's a picture of a man here standing in an anatomical position with a bunch of lines on him, which is from a research article from Dr. Michael Hamblin that says, the current applications of photobiomodulation. And of course, this isn't a complete list. This is just some of the stuff that red light therapy can help with or photobiomodulation. So now I'm going to read this list and there's actually not much crossover as I look at it. So hear me out. Stroke, traumatic brain injury, hair regrowth, tinnitus, temporomandibular joint disorder, skin rejuvenation, dentistry and pain, mucositis, neck pain, unsealed fractures, reduction of myocardial infarction, lateral epicondylitis, which is tennis elbow, laser lipolysis, or fat removal, carpal tunnel syndrome, muscle fatigue, arthritis, wound healing, Achilles tendonitis. So again, not a complete list, but if you haven't heard it before, now your eyes are hopefully wide open to the applications and potential utilizations of red light therapy. And so I want to wrap up this episode by reading one more section from Anadi Martel's book, Light Therapies, as he goes into the problem of flicker. And this is a huge reason why I was so dedicated to BioLite products having the lowest flicker rate possible. Of course, there's going to be some flicker rate if it's plugged into electricity, but again, minimizing it as much as possible. And you'll learn why here. The brain is highly sensitive to all forms of pulsation. On the positive side, the sensitivity opens the door to the whole domain of vibrational medicine. Conversely, the sensitivity means we can be particularly vulnerable to a phenomenon of lighting called flickering. The oscillation of light, which can be found whenever a light source generates an unsteady output. All current lighting technologies are susceptible to generate flickering that can be more or less pronounced. Our traditional light source, the incandescent bulb, when plugged into an AC power line, emits an oscillating light with a rectified frequency that is double that of the power line, that frequency being 100 or 120 hertz. But since its filament reacts slowly to changes in the current, the amplitude of this light oscillation is relatively small, about 7% of the total light intensity. The first fluorescent tubes also oscillated at these frequencies, but more strongly. 
This lighting was so badly received by the public, with reports of migraines and ocular fatigue among other complaints, that manufacturers had to modify the ballasts powering them to elevate the pulsation frequencies to many dozens of kilohertz. Subsequently, Wilkins in 1989 revealed the reduction of about 50% of the perceived symptoms from these improved fluorescent sources, but many people continued to exhibit discomfort when exposed to them for a long period of time. For a long time, it was considered that flickering could be reduced to a safe level by making sure that its frequency be higher than what is known as the flicker fusion frequency, the maximum flicker frequency that our visual system is capable of perceiving. Depending on the individual, flicker fusion frequency is in the order of 50 to 90 hertz. Above that frequency, the eye stops perceiving flicker. The reasoning went like this. If the light pulsation is invisible, how could it be causing problems? But already by 2010, this somewhat simplistic approach was called into question, and a number of studies have shown that even if it is invisible, flickering can lead to difficulties such as migraines, headaches, and eye stress in certain sensitive people. Newer, more extensive studies in this area have begun to detect negative side effects from higher and higher frequencies. In response to this, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, recommends in its latest report of 2015 that one should avoid flickering below 3000 Hz, a much higher limit than the 50 to 90 Hz value previously recognized. Furthermore, one can note that even the latest standards reflect only the data relevant to allopathic medicine and do not take into account the more subtle effects that are important considerations in energy medicine. According to these considerations, any vibrational information can have an effect on an organism, including at levels of stimulation well below the established threshold of normal sense perception. Certain people are hypersensitive to electromagnetic fields, and it is highly likely that there exists a similar form of hypersensitivity to light. This would explain why some people become quickly affected at a flicker level that for others is inoffensive, since the latter are people who are capable of absorbing a higher level of environmental stress without experiencing any immediate symptoms. From this arises the difficulty in evaluating the criteria permitting the establishment of admissible levels of flickering as they depend on the susceptibility of the subjects, which varies greatly. Still, whether it originates from the radio waves or from light, in general, such environmental stress potentially contributes in the long run to the multiple chronic pathologies that are so widespread today. So, as, as the book mentions... With a higher flicker rate, and again, it's, it's naked to the human eye, but our body, our brain, still perceives it, it leads to headaches, migraines, lethargy, uh, low energy, low concentration, eye strain, and different mood and behavioral disorders. So when you're looking at a red light therapy device, you want something that is as low flicker as possible, because why expose your body to these vibrational energies more than you already do on a daily basis. So that was my reason for making sure that BioLite has the lowest light flicker possible. And with that being said, if you get a handheld device that runs on an internal battery, thus doesn't need to be plugged into electricity, that device should have virtually a zero flicker rate. So if you want to forego the flicker rate altogether, just get a handheld device that doesn't plug into electricity and that'll work just as well. 
And that's going to wrap it up for today's solo sode, everybody. I appreciate every single one of you for listening to the end of this episode here. And I hope you find, you know, this information, you know, for some of you guys, it's going to be a review, but it certainly helps to go over and just remind ourselves of, you know, the history of light and light therapy, you know, what it's gone through to appreciate what we have today, whether it's light technology or appreciating the sunlight for, for what it truly is. Appreciate every single one of you. And if you haven't yet, I would greatly, greatly appreciate every single one of you leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Because the more reviews that this podcast can get, the more exposure it will potentially have to people that either haven't learned about red light therapy, haven't heard about red light therapy, or just haven't found the podcast on red light therapy. So if you feel like this information, whether it's this episode or my podcast as a whole, has been beneficial to you, you have found that it has impacted you in a positive way, please go ahead and leave a five-star review so that others can learn and listen to this podcast. I would genuinely appreciate it, and you would be helping out other people as they learn and navigate their own health and wellness journey. Regardless, hope you guys have found this information useful, applicable, interesting, all of the above, but I'm going to go outside, get some more sun exposure, and continue to build up my sun callus. You guys have a fantastic week, and as always, light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.